Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Lanasek, and Al Levy. Hey, everybody. Hey. How you doing? Welcome to the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast Show. I feel like it's been a couple of years since we last did one. Yes, it's funny how a week can feel like a month. Has it really only been a week? I think it's been like maybe two weeks. Maybe a week. I don't know. Well, Yeah, it's because we did them all on back-to-back. I've been mixing a lot. I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm ready for a good Mix Crit Monday. Yeah, and I've got plenty to talk about for this one, so... I haven't been mixing in over a week, so. <laughs> well, what about those nine, the nine songs we did for Kickforge? Well, that was like two or three weeks ago. The thing that's cool, though, about those mixes, by the way, is that they're all different. I love that. Well, thank you. We spent a lot, and I mean a lot, of time working on those and trying to get them to be, what would, what would the word be, genre-specific for the style of drums we were going to use. Yeah, but you know what's so powerful about the way that worked is that you were a part of the production. So, you know, there was a couple songs on there where we had someone else, you know, play guitar and, and et cetera. But once everyone is involved in the same thing and everyone's on the same page, the mix comes out so much better because the production is being made for a specific, you know, there's a, there's a guide, there's a direction for the sound. And I think what might happen in some of these. Um, I think the same person is doing the production in the mix, but sometimes it's different people and they're not on the same page. I'm not sure if that's true for any of the songs you're going to listen to today, but there's definitely a a strength to working with, you know, working closely with every step of the process. Well, I think that on one of these songs, the guy recorded everything. And on the other one, the guy co-wrote it, but I believe that the music was recorded in China, and then he mixed it in Canada. I kind of feel like long-distance production can be rough sometimes. I don't know, man. I'll tell you why. I just mix, or I shouldn't say mix, I sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, I just mastered a bunch of stuff from India over the last month, and the guy I work with over there is really stellar, and we have a great relationship. You know, the first time I mastered from, it took us a couple of back and forths to figure out his preferences, but... You just said it. You just said it right there. You yeah. got a great relationship with him, and the back and forth took a while to get get it right. That's you guys getting on the same page and making that work, that long-distance thing work. I think there's people out there trying to do this long-distance, I mean, because the Internet has made it so easy, but they're not on the same page, and you can hear that. Yeah, and just to echo that point, and to kind of take this back in time to our mastering month, when we had Alan Douches on, who is, you know, one of the best and most employed mastering engineers in our genre, even in the day and age where people are doing their own masters. And I think that it's because he does take that time to get on the same page with his clients. And that's one of the things that he does that a lot of other mastering engineers don't do. I do think that it's probably less of a process to get on the same page for mastering than for production and mixing because there's just way more moving parts. But that doesn't mean that it's any less important, I think. 
Yeah, mixing is a whole other beast because there's just so many dynamic elements. You know, the first time you mix a song for somebody new, you have to learn all of their expectations. And unlike mastering, where it's usually like, how compressed do they like it? How loud? What kind of low end to treble balance? You know, like the the minor things. Mixing gets crazy because it's like, okay, what kind of snare drums does this person like? Do you know what kind of kick drum? Do they like their stuff really separated, or do they like it warm? Do they like you know, lots of vocals in the mix or a lot of guitars, or do they hate bass, you know, things like that. So mixing is always a very, very challenging thing to do on the first shot, I believe. Yeah. I have a question for you guys, because I think there's two schools of thought. One is that you do what the client wants, right? You got to meet their tastes and expectations. But on the other hand, if you have your own sound or your own thing, like for instance, a Kurt Ballou sound, he's actually very accommodating to his clients. But just for sake of example, like if someone goes to Kurt wanting a Joey mix, even if he's trying to accommodate them, that might not work and vice versa, right? So where's the line drawn? I think you just have to be responsible enough to make the right decisions. And this, this is something that happened. Um, there was a project that Joel and I had taken uh, with a good friend. Uh, you guys might know him if you're on the forum. His name's John Wolf, And um, mm-hmm. he wanted his album to sound like the Seosin album. Can't remember the name of the album. So Joel and I spent a great deal of time talking about how to do that and went and did all the research and, and figured it out. And made it sound exactly like the say. I mean, not exactly, but you know, very close to the Seosin album. And we showed it to John, and he hated it. And this was a classic example of when the client doesn't know what they want. The client thinks they want it to sound like Seosin because they like that Seosin record. They don't realize those are real drums. You got program drums in your in your recording. So that exact same thing happened to me when I was working with that band Reflections a few years ago and they wanted real drums, real this, real that and when I gave them that they freaked out in a bad way. And uh when I then made it as sample heavy as they were saying they wanted, they were over the moon. So yeah, yeah uh, there's definitely the a matter of learning to interpret what they actually want versus what they say they want. Yeah. Yeah. You got to you got to know when they're a little bit out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also at the same time, maybe they're hiring the wrong person. When do you draw the line and say maybe I'm not the right guy? Absolutely. That's happened to me. Will Putney had a band that wanted me to mix something and the manager was into it and the band was into it. I don't know about Will, but I got the project. I started mixing it. Me and Will go back and forth for for a good, I think, four weeks or so. And uh, finally at the end, I was like, you know, if we're at four weeks right now and we're still talking about the snare, I don't think I'm the right guy. I just, I don't think I'm the right guy. So he ended up mixing it. And that was me being responsible to know Man, I really love. I'd love to work on this this project. I'd like to have this name on my resume, and I and I really like to have this money. But at the end of the day, it's it's art, and if I'm not helping the art come across the way that the producer wants it to come across, and the way the band wants it, and everything, then I need to step out and let the right person step in. 
Yeah, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy because as a mixer, you definitely are going to have a sound and a style that you're going to get known and recognized for and people will hire you based off that. But then when somebody walks in and says, I want you to mix it like this or like that, which isn't your style, you kind of have to find that happy medium of imparting your style and your sound on it, but meeting their expectations. And it's it's very interesting. So you just got to educate the client, I feel like, up front and have a good long discussion and get inside of their head. And once you figure out at least a ballpark direction, that way, if they say they hate it on the first mix, you can at least go back to them and say, OK, well, I did what you told me to do. Now I'm going to do what I think I should do. And let's see if that gets you closer. Then usually on the second time, you can nail it. But sometimes weird situations like that happen. Yeah. And just remember, since they probably don't have a good frame of reference for their suggestions or what they say they want. The only thing they can point to are records they like for whatever reason. They're not going to be pointing to those records because they're the most educated choices. It's just because that's that's what they listen to and that's what they like. And uh, maybe when they say they want it natural, what they mean is they just don't want it to sound like a typewriter machine gun basketball you know yeah that's very true because for example this happens all the time somebody will be like okay i want the drums to be blended you know every time i do a mix with a mixer the drums are blended x amount and they give you a percentage and you're like okay then you send them a mix and they're like well it sounds too natural or you know and then you listen to the records they reference and those records are like straight up 100 percent sample replaced but the client somehow thinks they're blended and it's interesting because I feel like a lot of that stuff gets lost in translation and people think they understand it, but they don't. And being, you know, that we do this stuff for a living, you can hear it right away and you can be like, okay, well, that doesn't sound like it's blended. It sounds like it's like 90, 10 minimum, if not flat out a hundred percent replaced. Wasn't it Kane Churko who said that instead of arguing with words about mix directions or whatever, he'll just do it and show people? Or was that someone else? I think that that's whoever it was who said that. One of our guests said that. I think that's great advice right there because you can talk all day long about what something sounds like, but if you don't have something to actually listen to, it, you know, it's hot air for the most part. Yeah, the reference point and what words mean when we relate them to sounds and color and stuff it can be different for different people. And so sometimes it's good to just get out of the language barrier and actually utilize, uh, well, you know, now we have plugins. And I know um, one of the guests was saying that they use like DF Excite and they'll let the artist come up to the computer and actually turn some knobs on DF Excite to kind of convey what they want to hear or what they want different, which I thought was really cool because, you know, DF Excite was meant to be a creative tool. And sometimes I think that's much more powerful than arguing over what dark means. <laughs> <laughs> Punchy. <laughs> Warm. It's time for Mix Grit Monday. Monday. So this first song is called A Game That Won't Get Old by Riley Jackson and Jesse it's Collins. Actually, yeah, it's actually by Jesse Collins. Riley Jackson mixed and produced it. Okay, awesome. So yeah, let's, let's hear that song now. Whoa, 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 whoa,
game and I swear it won't get old I'll play the prince if you play the other role Let's lay our cards on the table, I won't fold She's got them sold, he'll never fold She begs and begs into words and walks away She'll never know that it's the best for everything He'll never learn, that's what she's told Bodies chasing faces is a game that won't get old A Game That Won't Get Old by Jesse Collins. But mixed and produced by our subscriber, Riley Jackson. Yeah. So first things first for me, the snare drum, I kind of feel like was under-processed. And I can tell that it's... I, I think the other problem I have with it is that I can tell that it's a certain sampler. Yeah. <laughs> it's also kind of thin, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think the whole mix is kind of like really thin yes. on the thin side and it just needs a lot more. Yeah. Not a lot, but maybe 20% more just beef everywhere. My, my first note right here was drums need more low end, but as I kept listening, I was like, actually, everything needs a little more low end. Yeah, I remember when I listened to this, I was thinking, where's the bass? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the kicker for me. So in the beginning, it starts out and it's a little bit like kind of lo-fied and affected. And then when it comes in and it's supposed to hit, it feels like it just moves sideways instead of coming in and going, holy shit, yes. Yeah. Like it comes in and it's supposed to rock, but it doesn't rock because it's too thin. Yeah. If it was a little bit thicker, it would rock harder. Also, there's just some weird levels going on from part to part. And let me just preface that by saying that I definitely think that different parts of a song should have different mixes. Like, I totally back that. Uh, if guitars need to come up in a chorus, cool. You know, whatever you got to do to get the point across is fine. But when the song first comes in, 
and that whoa oh oh part, the cymbals are really loud and kind of painful, and the guitar is pretty much non-existent. And then when the guitars do finally get loud, and I guess in the second part of the verse, they're super fucking loud, but then the cymbals are really unclear. It's just, uh, there's stuff like that going on through the entire song where the level jumps are way extreme, not smooth. over-automated, possibly? Possibly. Now, I don't know what uh, Riley Jackson's situation is, but I'm going to assume, and I hope I'm right, that this was done in a improperly treated room. I think in that room, this song might sound great, but if your room's not tuned properly, then it doesn't sound good anywhere else. I think that there could be an issue somewhere in the 150 to 250 hertz range where you're getting he's getting too much of that in his room, so he's, he's kind of cutting it out. Yeah, that would make sense. And I, I think that might be the problem here, but... I'd be interested to know what his setup is. Yeah, uh, he didn't give us any info on that. He just told us what he used. Um, But I don't know anything about his room. Now, another thing is, I definitely think that the compression and de-essing on the vocals is kind of weird. Like, I'm hearing a ton of sibilance that's just, ouch. So I would definitely say de-ess those a little better. But then also... I'm hearing all kinds of weird things sticking out in the vocals volume-wise, like at the beginning of words, like vocal sounds, throat sounds, things like that. So I think that his uh, also his compression settings are a little whacked. So check those attack times. Yeah, definitely. What did you guys think about the overall volume and balance of the vocals? I mean, usually I like stuff pretty loud, but you guys feel like they were a little bit too hot, actually, sometimes? Yep. Um, I don't know. It's right on the edge for me, but sometimes I wish they were like, man, I don't know. Maybe, no, okay, I figured, I just figured out what it is. Because the mix doesn't have quite enough beef to it, like, it's not full enough. It, it's way too, like, separated and thinned out. It feels to me like normally I'd really like the, the loud vocals, but they feel a little disjointed because they're super loud, which is very stylistic for the genre of song and, you know, what is definitely something that most people would do. It just needs that. You know, there's not enough beef under them to support the vocal, and so they feel, at least to me in my ear, a little bit disconnected. Yeah, I, I think fixing the low end would help that tremendously for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, I think there's an acoustic guitar in there. Uh, he didn't say that there is, but I feel like I'm hearing one, especially in the bridge, uh, when it goes to that glockenspiel part. It sounds like there's a background strummy thing, and... I also feel like I'm hearing that in other parts of the song. And I understand why you would want to layer an acoustic for extra, I guess, for extra texture and rhythm and all that. But it sounds so non-distinct and weird that it's just kind of adding noise. And then also, I was noticing that I was hearing this weird, clicky, distortion-y, weird thing on the kicks, okay? And I was hearing that mainly when they were going in rapid succession. And then I noticed there was an acoustic that sounded like that weird clicky noise I was hearing. And now I'm thinking that it's just on those parts and what I'm hearing is that weird acoustic sound that's just kind of doesn't sound like an acoustic, but doesn't sound like a texture. It just sounds like a, a weird noise. Acoustic but, anomaly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. I get why you would want to put one in a song like this, but I just think that that needs a little more work. 
Also, I was going to say that the glockenspiel chime thingy sounds really, really plastic. I would uh, take out some 3K and add some cool effects like Santos Crystallizer or Valhalla Shimmer and make that thing sound more dreamy. Not like... Uh, yeah, yeah. Not like you Casio'd it. <laughs> <laughs> Casio'd it. Yeah, and, it, and uh, in regards to the whole de-esser thing, sometimes you can get into a mix and it could be you know, a complicated mess of inserts and chains and routing. And, and you're kind of like, well, I don't know, really know where to put the, the de-esser. One quick fix trick for de-essing that you can do is take all of your vocal tracks, bust them to one group, throw a multiband compressor on there, and just bypass all of the bands except for the the highest two. You want, you're going to want your highest, highest band from like, let's say, I don't know, maybe maybe 12K and up. And between 5K and 12K, you're gonna have two two bands there, and you just treat the um, the attack and release times a little bit differently on those two. Obviously, one being sharper than the other. And uh, a lot of times, doing that on the the whole group of all the vocals will be just fine. I've done it many times. There's been times where I've I've turned in a mix to the label and the band. Everyone's like, "Yep." It proved this is a great mix. And then I go and listen to it in my car afterwards and realize, crap, I forgot to do the DSing. And nobody had a note on it. But, you know, me me wanting to have the best work I possibly can have, I'm I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I gotta fix this DSing problem. <laughs> but I don't want to change the mix too much because, you know, it's been improved. So the, I, I will do that as like an emergency fix. And it works a lot of the time. So here's something worth noting on DSing. And I know we're talking about mix and critting mixes, but I feel like 80 to 90% of DSing scenarios where I have a hard time in mixing with the vocal is because I feel like sometimes people record a vocal where it's the wrong microphone for the singer, or they'll use like a really cheap microphone, like condenser or something like that in the $100 range. And it's just super sibilant, or even in the expensive range, because like the Manly Cardioid reference mic or whatever that thing is called, that thing, if you don't have the right singer for that, it can sound incredible and it can sound like absolute dog shit because it's just so bright and sibilant and it brings out way too much of that stuff. So sometimes if you get a really essy vocal track, you can ask them, hey, guys, you know, retract this with like a dynamic or just figure out what they did and find the opposite of what that is and try using that. And sometimes that'll save a mix. I've had that happen to me. He used an SM7B, but he didn't say. Really? Yeah. Well, he didn't, he didn't, and he says he's got Super Esser on it at 40%. I'm guessing the Super Esser is a de-esser. But maybe he's just not targeting the right frequency range yeah. properly. Or we have a super sibilant type. I mean, yeah. there's so many variables and without actually hearing the tracks in the raw state soloed. It's very difficult to listen to the final thing and say, okay, here's what you should have done. You can also uh, tape a pencil to the front and in, um, in front of the diaphragm because the treble sounds move faster than the bass sounds. So the idea is that they'll hit that pencil and they'll have to maneuver around it to get into the diaphragm. And that little tiny delay and that little tiny reflection reduces it just enough to help with the processing. Uh, it doesn't negate the fact, like you'll still probably have to DS it depending on what your production techniques and your mixing techniques are, but it does allow you to do less of it and have it sound more natural. So you could also try that. If you're not sure what the pencil trick is, I'm sure you could just 
Google it. Um, it's, it's a very, very popular trick. Yeah, totally. Okay, so should we go into the next song? Yeah, let's do it.
Okay, that was Never Meet Again, mixed by our subscriber, James Zahn. And he also was the co-writer and the mastering engineer. Oh, cool. Hey, do you guys remember the band Nightwish? <laughs> They're still around. Yeah, well, I maybe early 2000s was the first time I heard of that band, but it just, just kind of definitely reminds me of that because you don't hear like operatic singing very often and like heavy music. So yeah. anytime I hear that because they were like the first band, I always think of that band. Let me tell you something about Nightwish because I, I don't listen to that kind of stuff. And I believe that that whole thing that Americans say about metal being bigger in Europe is mainly just a myth. And I say that from having gone over there many times and on metal tours. I mean, there are some good festivals and some big bands, but there's also good festivals here. I mean, they do have the festival season, but I still don't think that metal is that much bigger there. I definitely think grass is greener. However, Nightwish is enormous. I was dating someone who worked for them, ran their merch. Now, you, when you think of a merch person... You, you're thinking lower on the totem pole, right? But when you're making 25,000 euros a night in merch sales, that's a, a huge responsibility. Yeah, that's a pretty high amount of money considering oh, yeah. I've been on arena tours and watched a headliner sell 10,000 people out and move between 35 to 45K a night. So that's that'll show you how big of a deal that is. Yeah, 25K euros, which is... I think back then was close to $50,000, more like $42,000 or something was the average. And, uh, you know, 5,000 people was a small show. Uh, they're averaging fifteen to 25,000. So, yeah, that's one case where it really is a lot bigger in Europe. But uh, back to this mix. This is weird because I think it's muddy and thin at the same time. <laughs> and harsh in some places, yeah, too. Yeah, it's weird. I normally don't say that something is muddy and thin, but I feel like it's lacking from like 100 and down, but then 100 to 400 is just this weird soupy thing. You guys noticing that? Yeah. yeah, you know what I think the main propagator of that is, is the keys. Well, I mean, one of the main things. There's a lot of issues in the guitars, drums, and bass, but there's this keyboard patch thing, and I feel like it has way too much mid-range in it, and it's masking a lot of stuff. Also, the, the part itself is just weird. The timing's weird. Like, I've noticed this throughout the whole song, I know we're talking about mixing and not editing or whatever, but I feel like when the feel is this strange and discombobulated, it's going to be hard to get a good mix. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, that keyboard line is not only weird EQ-wise, but the timing of it is just odd. Like, And I don't mean like odd time and cool. I mean, it's just odd and feels disjointed but that's not just that i all some of the drum patterns and the way they line up with the guitars are also a little like that so one thing with keyboards just to highlight a lot of times this is a major problem i run into the more songs i mix from people who just do things like in their bedroom for example and they'll have it out mixed and you know they'll spend a lot of money on mixing but they'll just record it at home and not put any like you know they want to hire a professional producer, for example, to come in and work with their band. So like when the band records it is more what I'm saying, as opposed to like somebody who's in their bedroom and actually does this and is attempting to do this for a living. So a major problem that 
I run into is a lot of times people put the keyboard parts in the wrong octave. So if the, all the guitars are in the mid-range and then they put the mid-range keyboard behind it that's in the same octave playing similar notes, you know, you have to go up or down, usually up, because you're fighting for all that frequency room. They don't even think about it like that. They're like, okay, I got this piano and this string that's going to go behind the guitar, but it's in the exact same octave as the guitar. So it's almost impossible to get them to switch with EQ. And you can't highlight any of the instruments because it's all just fighting for the exact same space. So from an arrangement point of view, sometimes simply taking a keyboard part or up an octave makes a huge difference. Yeah. And that, I think there's one exception to that. And I feel like it's when you're trying to make a blend a blended sound, right? Where yeah. it could just be that even though you have a guitar playing a part and a keyboard playing a part and they're in the same octave, it could just be that it's not supposed to sound like a guitar or a keyboard. It's supposed to sound like the blend of those two, the way that that band Muse does it a lot. But I feel like in this case, it's not supposed to be a blended hybrid sound. It's supposed to be guitar with symphonic kind of arrangements and in that case your arrangements need to be totally on the money and a good example of bands to listen to would be Nightwish or Demu Borgir Rhapsody well I uh, they're not as good in my opinion with their arrangements <laughs> I'm I'm pointing out those two bands because they hire film composers to uh, to help orchestrate their parts and so their arrangements are always dead nuts on yeah, definitely. That may or may not be the solution for this. It's been 30-some minutes since I've listened to that actual mix, but that's just a good, I would say, starting point. Because sometimes I'll just pitch shift in the DAW when I'm mixing if I feel like a part's in the same octave and just hear what it sounds like. Sometimes you can get away with it, and sometimes it sounds corny, or you have to ask the band to reprint it. But it can make a huge difference and can be a lifesaver. So I just kind of wanted to interject that and throw that out Here's there. Here's another edit uh and arrangement and just performance issue, but I feel like it sours the mix a little. So I noticed that, well, first of all, let's just say that, damn, that vibrato is really wide. <laughs> so the last vocal note sounds a half step too low to me. It sounds weird. And I feel like it's confusing due to the super wide vibrato because it vibrato's into the right note, but it sounds like it's centered a half step too low. That makes me think of, I remember when Tim Ripper Owens was down in Florida recording and it was impossible to really tune his vocals because his vibrato is so loud. And I feel like, or more, I'm wondering, do you guys have any solutions for tuning vocals when vibrato is this, this wide? I do. Um, I had a band once where the guy was like, ah, 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 ah. you know, he was like, ridiculous vibrato on every single thing. And in Cubase's stock, you have to do it in block editing, okay? So in Cubase's stock, very audio, which is what I used to tune, which is similar to Melodyne, you can generally adjust the block and then you can tighten the range of the vibrato a little bit and it can help it sound more in pitch. And if you can't get away with that, you're pretty much screwed. So I would start with a block tuning editor because if you do like auto-tune, you know, in a non-block where you're just drawing a line, it's going to pull everything down. Where in a- I was using auto-tune. Yeah. So. Well, it depends on what version because I use... 
If you use Evo, you can draw those lines and you can actually adjust the vibrato of the line. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I'm, I haven't used Evo, but I know it's just so quick in a block to just kind of squish it down a little bit by, say, 20%. It compresses the range, and then it's... But let me just say that we were using Auto-Tune Evo, and we're pretty good at tuning, but I think that, you know how when you hit a tuner with stuff that's way out of... Uh, his capabilities, weird shit comes out. Yeah, absolutely. I just wonder if my experience was feeding stuff this vibratoed into it ended up with uh, bad results, but maybe it's maybe it would be easier on Melodyne. Well, I'll tell you a story, actually. The reason I use Very Audio is because that exact record, it was the only tuner, and I had Melodyne and Auto-Tune. It wasn't Evo. I mean, this is maybe 2008, no, maybe 10. I, was, I did this record. And I tried Very Audio as a last-ditch effort, like, okay, I'll just use the stock one. And it was literally the only one that could track the pitch correctly, meaning, like, not have blocks all over. And it sounded the most natural. So ever since then, I've switched to Very Audio, and I just use it, and I like it. So try it. I guess if you use Cubase, it's worth a shot. All right. Yeah, and uh, I think this style of singing is hard to process because it yeah it's not, you know, projected the same. And you can hear that uh, the mixing... Uh, is struggling with that. I kind of feel like my suggestion on that would be to use more like outboard, maybe lunchbox style compression in the analog realm because I feel like it can handle that a little bit better than plugins. I could be wrong, but I I don't know. That's just my my gut is like yeah, it feels like it needs to be you know compressed in the analog realm because there's times where cer- certain parts of the voice are too loud and and or too soft it's it's kind of all over the place dynamically when we're talking about the actual balance of of what's coming out of you know her mouth yeah there's lots of syllables at weird spots that just stick out crazy yeah and what what do you think joel do you think it needs analog compression yeah well as we were talking about last week uh with gregory scott is analog at least to me and you know, everybody will have their opinion on this, but I feel like it has a different feel and a different re- reaction than digital compressors. Like you push into a digital compressor and even like the best, most modeled realistic ones don't have the same, you know, blowback or rubber banding effect to them. Like you can push into them and they don't push back the same. Some of them just you push into and it never comes back to you. So I would, it's worth a try. I would definitely try it. Yeah. Right. And uh, I would also say um, on the guitars, um, they need some cleanup. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what it is? is it's They still sound a little bit too... It's like, I want to say crunchy, but in a bad way. Yeah, I feel like the low mids are soupy and undefined, flubby, but then the high parts have the painful kinds of highs and high mids, but not the kind that help the definition out. And then I also feel like they sound like overcompressed or limited. And you can really hear that in the pauses, like when it comes back in yeah, after yeah, a pause. Yeah. yeah, you can really hear that the compression is real weird on the guitars. Yeah, maybe they just need to be, I don't even know if it's an option, but maybe they just need to be replayed with better like pick attack, for example, and more, you know, a stronger strike against the string. Well, even if that's not the option, I think it could be, it still could be salvaged with better mixing and better processing, or at least reamping it and paying attention to the things that we mentioned. Um, well, it sounds to me also so his chain is Podform, Ozone EQ, Fab Filter Saturn, and L1. So 
right there, Fab Filter Saturn is adding more distortion. Sometimes that's a good thing, but does does Saturn have a, a mix knob? Yes. Okay. Maybe the mix is off. Yeah. I think maybe too much, or maybe you don't need it at all. I'd be interested to hear it without it, because uh, I feel like that's there's something on that guitar, something additional that uh, is annoying. <laughs> uh, yeah, from it's like a, the low end is all over, and the high end is just all searing. over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a weird combination. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm also hearing that the leads are weird because. I can hear them, but they're non-distinct, and they sound really, really thin and hammity. I'm glad you can hear them, because half the time I can't. Well, at first I thought they were a keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized that they were a guitar, because I could hear the pick noise. Well, maybe, maybe we can agree that um, there's probably not a listening environment problem on this one. Maybe maybe your center image could be off. That That might be the one thing, in terms of, you know your reflections and your environment and how your sound is moving around your room, you might have an issue with your center being too quiet or too loud, which I will say for like the first half of my career, that was my problem. Um, so you'll listen to a lot of stuff I did a long time ago and the vocals aren't very loud. That's because in my listening position, the vocals were way too loud. So when people were telling me, Hey, the vocals need to be turned up. I'm going, What? Because, you know, in where I'm sitting, they sound, they sound really loud. And that's just because my center image was too, it was off. So that might be one thing to look at. Yeah, if the speakers are really close to each other, you're going to have an over, what's the word I'm looking for? Center. Exaggerated. Well, I've seen, I've seen a picture of his room, and I know his speakers are very close to him. Okay. The farther out they go, the weaker the center image is, but the closer they are, the stronger it is. So you kind of got to, it's like a rubber band, you know, it, it's, it either sags or it, you know, it, it's stretched too tight or, yeah. you know, it balloons. And it can depend on other things too, like, like where your screen is, because the sound can bounce off of your screen and make the center image more, make it louder as, to, as well. Real quick, right back to the lead guitars. I just wanted to say that I do think they need to be replayed, but say that they can't be replayed. I would uh, either multiband compress or EQ that pick noise out of them because on those, whenever he's picking, I just hear that clicky, clicky, clicky pick noise. And then dynamic EQ can fix yeah, that too. Yep. And then uh, fix those low mids. Like they're way, those leads are way too thin. And also volume wise, they're way too quiet. Can we talk about bass now? And low end? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. This this is a major thing for me. Like Just like the last mix, I'm kind of like, where's the bass? I don't know. The, the low end to me feels weird. It's hard to pinpoint. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing that I find in a lot of, at least for my mixes, I really can't go back to not having a fabricated bass. Whenever I get a real bass track... Unless, unless the player is just amazing. And I'm talking about somebody who's paying attention to, in their hands, they're feeling how much the, the instrument is vibrating. And when it doesn't vibrate a certain amount, they go, nope, that wasn't good. Even though they hit the note perfectly on time, they played the note right, and it's pitch perfect, there's this whole other matrix, sixth sense, that's happening with a good player. They know the instrument's just not, it's not making that 
you know, it's not vibrating like how they want it to. And they stop when that happens. Unless you're working with someone like that, the low end is never there for me. I always have to fabricate it to get my mix to do what I want it to do. So I'm, I'm wondering if that, do we have notes on, on how that was done? He used massive metal bass, pod farm, fab filter Saturn, and L1. Okay. So, you know, that's a it, massive metal bass. That's a fake, uh, that's a bass VST, right? Yes. Okay. So maybe, maybe, maybe I am wrong there. It could be that the low end isn't tight enough. It's a, it's a bass instrument. Yeah. It's the, the, the low end could not be, maybe it's not compressed enough. But I just noticed, I wanted to say, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with real basses and, and wondering about, you know, should I use fake bass or should I make, you know, my low end fabricated, just know that uh, it's very rare that, a musician is capable of, of, you know, controlling the low end enough to where it uh, it really works in the mix. And sometimes you can get away with a, a decent performance and and compressing that into something that's more stable and and consistent. But even with it, even if you're using a uh, a bass instrument, don't take it for granted. It can still be off. The low end can be different in all of the notes that are recorded. And let me tell you, making a bass instrument is freaking hard because I've tried. And uh, you would you would know that if I succeeded because it would be out. But uh, <laughs> it's very hard to do. So this bass instrument could have their low end levels all over the place. Who knows? Yeah. I'm looking it up right now. I want to see who made it. Corey Brunneman did. Okay, Corey Brunneman. So it is possible that and, you know, no hate on Corey, but it is possible that those low ends could be the low end balance of, of all the different notes that were recorded to make up that bass instrument. They could be a little bit, you know, inconsistent. So it's possible that maybe you need more balance down there on the low end. Maybe you need more compression. Yeah. Or it could just be pilot error. Or you just need to turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, it's a. I think it's hard to know unless we're actually in the session, but I think that either way, like that issue needs to be solved because it just sounds anemic. Well, I, I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that uh, don't take it for granted, like just because you're using a bass instrument that it was built perfectly. Cause oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing as like when using uh, certain drum instruments, not, not drum forge, but some other ones if layering different drums together and getting phasing issues and a lot of people assume that just because pros made it that every single possible thing was fixed and that's not the case it's still made by people yeah yeah and even if the instrument's perfect perfectly made and it's it you know nothing's wrong with the instrument itself maybe it performing your song isn't the right thing at the exact moment too yep take that into consideration and and think about how the balance of your bass and your mix is being controlled by this one little midi note that you have somewhere in your song it's like no that might not be what it needs you might need to turn it up it might need to be automated louder you might need to eq it differently there's a lot of things that go into it and the performance could be off so it's it's a lot of uh variables that go into making sure it sounds you know exactly how you want and that would be my first look because i would go back to the you know back to the drawing board and see is the instrument consistent okay notes are consistent they're where i want them to be 
are these notes, are they EQ'd properly? Are they loud enough? Are they in balance with the drums and the vocals and the guitars and all this? And then once you've gotten all that leveled out, I would say the next thing would be multiband compression and limiting the range of movement on those low-end frequencies. Let me just read you my first note on this song. Yeah, let's hear it. Sure. Low end is muddy, and the mix sounds thin. That means <laughs> that you need to add more of the right type of low end, meaning the balance of the sub of the kick with the bass, the low mids of the guitars, the low end of the guitars, and control the flub more. Exactly. Yeah. That was the first thing that came to mind. So also, I think the snare is pretty quiet. I feel like it's probably got some good impact. It's hard to tell from the volume, but I feel like the at least the punch of it is probably okay. But I have a feeling also that when you turn it up, it might sound a little thin. So maybe 100 to 200 hertz to 250 hertz could stand some examination yeah the other the, the big problem with that is as soon as he gets the bass right that, that's all going to go to shit yep <laughs> precisely so start with the bass because the low end is going to dictate almost every move you make and all the way down to how loud the vocals are and what kind of eq is on the vocals yeah i think the hallmark of like an a-list mix is the low end treatment you know the a-list dudes always nail their low end and it always sounds inspiring when you hear it yeah here let's let's talk real quick about the heavy vocals i think when the heavy voice comes in it's super underwhelming well uh, first thing that's wrong with those i think i don't know what mic was used i'm not looking at the notes but i'm gonna say the wrong mic and i can yeah the mic was a uh shitty ten dollar chinese made condenser mic. <laughs> nailed it <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason why it's the wrong mic, I mean, first of all, come on, $10 mic. We can all agree that money doesn't matter and gear doesn't matter, but $10 mic, you can't you can't do that. All right. No. Gear does matter with a lot of cheap condensers. And they <laughs> really screw them up if they're below a certain price point, in my opinion. Now, yeah, I mean, look, I think that gear does matter, but I think that there's a lot of other things that matter a lot more. But you're not going to recover from using a $10 mic. Yeah. <laughs> Second thing is, whatever this mic is doing, it's picking up way too much sub energy from the voice or way too much sub energy was left in because when he when he screams, you can hear like 50 hertz rumbling and that just doesn't sound good with, with the rest of... Well, we had to get low end in the mix somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so I would put a filter on that bad boy right away. I would probably add a little bit of saturation slash distortion simply because I kind of feel like maybe in the production side, the voice wasn't layered enough. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I was thinking that running some parallel tracks of the heavy vocal with some heavy compression, saturation, distortion effects would be very helpful. Yeah, it would make it sound a lot more powerful and, and what it's intended to be. I got a good story about Chinese microphones. Let's hear it. So I got a lavalier mic so we can shoot some videos, right? And I have <laughs> I the this. Sennheiser G2 wireless. I paid $600 for it back in 2006 or seven or whatever. Really, really nice high-end wireless unit for the price range, right? So I order the mic 
thing because I have the guitar pack and it's just a different attachment. And they have one for like $20 and one for $100. And I should know better because I do this for a living and, you know, this is embarrassing, but I bought the $20 microphone and I got it and I hooked it up. I'm like, why does my voice sound lo-fi? Like who flipped the lo-fi button and gain reduction on my voice? What's going on here? And it was really weird because I couldn't figure it out. And then I realized the lav mic I bought was an absolute piece of shit and it had to get sent back. So be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It was literally a lo-fi sounding microphone. It's like there was nothing below 800 and nothing above 2K. It was literally just like a mid-band. Yeah, it's the quality of the parts can determine the the frequency range of what comes of the output. And that's part of what you pay for and there's definitely a range, you know, within within a certain dollar range, you're going to get, you know, great results. And that's why we're always saying, like, you know, you don't need a, a $12,000 manly reference mic to record, yes, vocal, <laughs> to record vocals when your vocalist isn't even singing in key yet. You know, it's like, worry about that first and then. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time. Radio Shack USB mic isn't going to do the trick. Right, right. Or a Chinese lavalier mic. Yep, precisely. A $20 special clearance on eBay. Bad decision. <laughs> well, cool, guys. That's all I've got for this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let us know if you guys learned some from this episode. You know, jump onto the, the Facebook group we have for you. Tell us what you think. And if you would like to be on Mixed Crib Monday, tell them how they can do that, AL. Well, everybody that subscribes should have a email or an email sitting in their uh, inbox with the rules. And what you have to do is uh, send an email to jsfpodcast at gmail.com with the subject line Mix Crit Monday submit and send us an mp3 of the song along with the two release forms and fill out the questionnaire link that we gave you and if you can't find that email then just go to the private producers club forum on facebook and look in the rules and those two releases and the questionnaire link are right there in the rules so can't miss them uh we won't crit without those that questionnaire anymore because we need to know at least a minimum amount about the songs we're going to be critting yeah it's more helpful to you guys really because if we can we can guess all day long, but that doesn't help you out. So make sure you fill that form out. Um, the more information we know about the song, the better. We can give you a more informed crit. So thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode and hope you learned something. And uh, see you next time. Take it easy. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.